0: All right, well, I feel like I've been preaching for a while already here, and we're just about to dive in. If you got your Bibles, I want you to open uh, to the, I believe it's the seventh book of the Bible. It's Ruth, and uh, we are going to be in the middle of a pretty amazing story this week. I preached on Ruth uh, back in 2016 in the Heroes series, and so uh, if you've been around since 2016, you may have heard uh, me talk about this incredible story, but we're in the middle of this series called Faces, and, uh, and FACES is uh, an acronym, and we don't use a lot of acronyms around here, but it's an acronym from some of the one another's that Jesus introduced us to and the scriptures introduced us to. And the one another's are all about how we are supposed to treat one another. And so time after time in the scriptures, it says you should do this towards one another. And we, we opened with a conversation about forgiveness because the scripture calls us to forgive one another. Last week, we talked about accepting one another and the the great challenge that we have but the power that gets unleashed when we accept one another. And this week, we are going to be talking about caring for one another. Now, the incredible picture of this series kind of comes from this idea and this understanding that each and every single person on earth was created in the image of God the Genesis chapter one picture of God's creation starts with a conversation about saying, let us create man in our image. There was something special and unique in all of creation when God decided to create people. All of his creation was amazing, was wonderful, has value, but there was something special when he created people. He said, this is good, and this is in my image. And we've been having this incredible conversation that if we see people, even who are different than us, as in the image of Jesus, it might just change all of our interactions with them. So we're in this series called One Another, and it's about how we relate and how we treat one another. This series called Faces, based on the one another's. And I could think of, When it comes for caring, so many times when people went out of their way to care for me. It's a pretty powerful thing when someone goes out of their way and demonstrates care for you. I remember when we first moved here, we moved in and we unloaded the truck. And uh, it was a a crazy hard rental uh, market. It was really hard to find a place to live up here. Uh, We were struggling. It was just the grace of God that helped us find a place. Uh, My wife had not seen the place yet. So there was a lot of faith involved. We showed up with a fully loaded truck to move into a place that my wife has not set foot in yet. And if you can imagine the, uh, the, the Christian conversations that we were having. Because merry folks that love the Lord don't fight. We have Christian conversations. <laughs> Come on, somebody. And so, and so there was some tension And we walk in, and it's like, what are we gonna do with all of our stuff, and where are things gonna go? And this small army showed up to help unload us. I gotta tell you, we met our first neighbor, his name's Cap, great guy, retired guy. Um, He came over and he said, You must be important. (laughs) I was like, What do you mean? He goes, There's never been this many people in our cul de sac, and I've lived here, I don't know how many years, 20 years. (laughs) And I was like, okay. <laughs> and the good report I earned with my neighbors, come on now, because people who didn't even know me saw me in a place of need and came and demonstrated care was contagious, was powerful. It's a big deal when somebody shows you care. I remember when, uh, when Mason was born There was, uh, we were getting ready to plant a church, but there wasn't really a a church going yet. And we were in a tough situation. I'd been unemployed for a long time uh, as we were going to plant the church, and there was a lot of risk and things involved. And someone got a meal train going for us. I don't know if you know what a meal train is. They just started bringing food over every day. Now, a meal train is an amazing thing. Here's the tension of a meal train. Everyone brings you a massive meal that there's no way you could eat in one sitting. But then the next day, another massive meal shows up. And you're like, this is so good. We'll eat this for three days. But then you have 31 days of food in four days show up, and it's impossible. Why does that happen? Because people just care. And then everyone wants to know how how much you loved it. And you're like, dude, I can't even taste any more food. I've been eating nothing. Like, I gained my baby weight after Mason. And Stuck around from there. So thanks for those that participated. No. <laughs> but caring is so important. It matters. I can think of many times that even strangers uh, showed me kindness. I've been a stranger and showed kindness. Come on now. Seeing someone in need and pausing and, and taking a moment. Probably my, my favorite, one of my favorite things to just do for people, uh, and when I see them in a tough spot, like when someone's stuck and their car breaks down and they're trying to figure out what to do, just pushing them somewhere safe like, there's not many things I can, I know nothing about cars, all right? I'm not a car guy. I cannot, I cannot change the oil. I can change a flat because I'm a man, but that's it. <laughs> I have no car skills, like, beyond that, but I can push things, and uh, it's funny. Uh, uh, in December, we did our, uh, our 49ers and Up group, which is our seniors, <laughs> seeing if that name will stick. Come on. <laughs> Come on, that's a good name. That's a good name right there. <laughs> and uh I was driving in, I had grabbed some arts and crafts stuff supplies that I still needed and I was driving in in front of uh in front of Rogers there on what's Rogers at 136 130 the cross 128. Thank you. I've only been here almost four years. <laughs> That's like literally like a block down. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and if you're headed towards Meridian, uh, it, got, it has a little bit of an incline, just a little bit of an incline. Someone had broke down like right in front of the tennis courts. And I was running behind and I needed to get here and get things set up. And I had that moment, right, where you're just like, oh, and I watched and he was trying to roll backwards. He had his door open it was five o'clock, so there was cars everywhere, and he was trying to roll backwards, so he can roll back down the little bit of the ramp, and into the parking lot, and I was just like, there's just no way, so I pulled up a little bit, pulled off on the right, and I get out of my car, and I start jogging, and uh, people are rude, man, they're like blasting by him on the other side, honking at me for being in the road, right, I got someone waved at me with not their full hand, I was like, really, right, I literally, just right there, right, and I'm like, okay, remember you pastor in this community, so <laughs> I don't want to be on the news, so I just let that go, um, And so, so I stopped to help push this guy, right? And then I realized I made a horrible mistake because this car can't, I can't push it uphill by myself with him steering. Like I physically can't do it. And I look, and these two young guys come jogging in. Come on now. They were wrestlers from over at Rogers. Now, now they come in and hoof, and now I look like a superhero, right? Because we're just like boom, and we just push it up there. And I ask them, I'm like, "How are you guys doing? Uh, you know, th- how are your calves or whatever?" And they're like, "Dude, we just did a full wrestling workout. We can't feel our legs right now." And I remember just thinking the care and kindness from these two young guys. Who saw this situation and jumped out. See, you thought I was going to be bragging about me. No, I was bragging about these guys that jumped out, completely blown out. You could tell it was hurting them, but they jumped in with, like, superhero strength. What happened? It's just those moments where we can demonstrate care and kindness. They're life-changing. Maybe you've been a recipient of that. Maybe you've had an opportunity to do that to live and be like Jesus, demonstrating care in those moments. Raising kids is a constant, constant conversation about care and teaching kids to care for one another and to care for each other. In our house, we have a conversation all the time about the golden rule, right? The golden rule, what is it? Do to others what you'd have them do to you, Luke 6.31, right? This simple conversation about caring for others, treating them with the kind of value you hope you would be treated with. You know why I stop and push cars all the time? Because if I'm ever stuck in that situation or, heaven forbid, my wife were ever stuck in that situation, my hope and prayer is that someone like me who maybe can't solve the car dilemma but can at least push them somewhere safe and off the road. And so... The scriptures give us this incredible relational tension about caring for people the way we would hope to be cared for. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul teaching about the structure of the body of Christ. Says, but God has so composed this body, that's all of us, And he's given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. He's saying not everyone is the same and not everybody has the same skill set. And some of you, if you saw a car on the side of the road, within 15 minutes, you could put a new carburetor in there and just send it on its way. Right? You could do that skill set, and some of you could not. But you have a cell phone that you could make sure you called AAA for them. And like, he's like, all the parts are different, and not any of them are more honorable or dishonorable. But here's the thing. The members may have what? The same care for one another. They're different, but he says, I don't want any division. Just because every person you interact with is different, I didn't do that to divide you. I did that to compliment you and to bring the whole body together because if all of us, come on now, worked on uh, 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 cars and, and none of us were doctors or none of us were real estate agents or none of us were stay-at-home moms and none of us were teachers, come on. We need all the pieces to come together. And Paul's saying the church is built up of all these different pieces, and we tend to assign more honor to different parts in different places. But that wasn't the purpose. They're actually unique to teach us to care for one another, to value the uniqueness and the difference. Verse 26, so if one member suffers, all suffer together, and if one is honored, all rejoice together. He says this is a, this is a complementarian relationship. And we all benefit and we all suffer together because we're supposed to care for one another. So... I racked kind of my heart and brain to, to figure out what story from the scriptures to take us into that demonstrates care. And there's so many stories and there's parables and there's all kinds of different room. But, uh, but I landed on the story of Ruth today. And you got your Bibles, you can get to, get to Ruth. And, and I love the picture. Now, the, the book of Ruth is four chapters long. And I could teach all four chapters, but well, there's no, there's no Seahawk game, right? It's the playoffs, so they're not, they're not doing anything today, right? <laughs> Oh, was that not caring? Come on now. The Niners haven't been in the playoffs for ages. Um, <laughs> so, so if you'll allow me this kind of little bit of leverage, and go, we're going to have just kind of story time with Pastor Mike, and I'm going to paraphrase some of the story, and I'll drop in the scripturally to kind of keep me on track. But here's my challenge to you. It takes probably 10 minutes or less to read these four chapters. And so would you, this week, take some time and read the story of Ruth? It is one of the best just stories ever written. It's an incredible story. It has all of the uh, cool things you would want in a story. There's like a love angle, there's suffering, there's heartbreak, there's courage, there's character. There's so many pieces in there. Take a few moments uh, this week and read the book of Ruth. But I want to read to you. Uh, and tell you some of this story this morning. But before I do, I have to give you some context. And so I'm going to actually begin and just read the first five verses, and then I'm going to tell you what's going on in this time. The book of Ruth. This will help you see what an incredible story this is. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were of, they were Ef, Epaphr, Af, oh man, I should have practiced this. Ephrathites, Ephrathites, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpa, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Now Listen. What an amazing opening of a story. There's so much depth and richness and context here. And I want to talk about context for just a a moment because this is an incredible story. It starts with a conversation about the fact that it's in the time of Judges. Now, If you've ever read through the book of Judges or you know the story of the book of Judges or you know what's going on in the time of Judges, it's before King David, it's before Samuel and Saul and David. The Israelites have inhabited the promised land and they're tribally kind of uh, separated by tribes and they're uh, uh, learning how to live with God as their king and it's not working out very well for them. They are turning from God, suffering, turning back to God God raises up a leader, kind of leads them on uh, out of the suffering into a time of wholeness, and then they start the pattern again. And there's a theme throughout the book of Judges. There's a a line that comes up over and over and over again. And it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Basically, saying there's no law that's really governing everybody. If it seems good to you, do it, is driving the story and the narrative. And this is the culture and the time and the setting of the book of Ruth. And at this time, there's a man named Elimelech. And he's from a place called Bethlehem. Does that sound familiar? Bethlehem literally means house of bread. House of bread. Now, eventually, come on, now the bread of life is going to come from Bethlehem. But this house of bread, there's a problem there's no bread. There's a famine in the land. So this man who's from the house of bread, has got no bread. So he takes his wife, and he goes on a journey looking for a place where they can live and survive during a time of famine. Now, what's interesting is we don't really know famine anymore in these parts. Like, we've experienced drought and fire season where it's like, try not to flush your toilet too often, Right? Try not to, uh, you know, if it's mellow, let it yellow. If it's brown, flush it down. That wasn't a thing here. I'm from California, so we have more droughts. That's California stuff. Okay, we'll move on, right? <laughs> so, so, like, we know what it's like to try to ration some water. You know what I'm saying? Try to, try to not waste a little bit. But we don't know what it's like when there's been no rain, and there's no crops, and there's no food, and the wells are dry, and people are dying. Of thirst and starvation that are your friends, that are your family. And you can't go to Costco. You can't load up. I'll take five, thirty, six packs of water, please. There's forty bucks. And you're okay for a while. You can't go outside and turn the hose on and be like, Oh, I gotta drink tap water for a while, All right? Like, come on. We don't know that kind of pressure that this family is under. When Elimelech leaves the, the promised land, essentially, and goes to Moab, and the story of the Moabites is, is horrific. I mean, they start with lot and incest and gross stuff, and, and, and like it's disgusting, their story and their culture, and they actually interact uh, with, uh, with the Hebrew nation when, when uh, God's bringing them towards the promised land, and there's sexual immorality and gross stuff. that ha- I mean, it's a mess in Moab, and for this group of people to go to this place is a very big step of saying man this is we got nothing. We got it's we're just trying to live. And they go there. And they survive for a season with Naomi and they have two sons and God blesses them and they bring their two sons and their sons growing up in Moab take Moabite wives. Again, this is culturally not a norm. It wouldn't have been accepted, but this is where they live now. And they're interacting with these people. And here's Naomi, and we meet this amazing woman, Naomi. And she experiences some of the most traumatic things. Her husband dies. Now, in this culture, in this time, there's no social security. And if your husband dies, you can't, as a widow, inherit any of his wealth. That passes to your firstborn son, and then it's on your kids to take care of you, or if you're young enough, for someone else in the family to marry you and keep your husband's line and wealth alive. But if no one will do that, you're on your own. So now she's in Moab where her husband doesn't have land and wealth, and so she's fully dependent on her two boys who have married these foreign women. She finds herself in this precarious situation, and within 10 years, both of her sons die. This is a rough start, guys. It'd be easy to blow through the context of this story and not recognize and pause for a moment a situation where famine has caused you to leave your home. You're a foreigner in a foreign land. Your husband dies. Your son dies. Your next son dies. And the only relationships you have, there's no grandbabies, the only relationship you have are the two daughter-in-laws in a place where you don't feel home, where you have nothing. She's fully dependent on the care of others. And so we have this crazy, beautiful picture. Why do I give you this context? Can I just be challenging to the church for a moment? Come on, church. I give you this context for a reason. Because another way to have said this without giving you all the depth and care of that context is this is a story about a foreign homeless woman trying to survive. She's a homeless woman, she's a foreigner. She's me, uh, dependent on the help of other foreigners. It'd be interesting to kind of think through her context. And here's what's important about context. Can I just, I man? if you guys don't catch anything else, I hope you catch this. When we get someone's context, it's easier to care for them, right? When we can hear their story, when you know that she's lost a husband and that she's lost a son and that she's lost another son, she goes from being some homeless woman some foreigner with no means to keep herself and take care of herself from being some dependent from someone else's problem to a human, come on now, to a life that deserves honor and hope and respect. So she talks to her two daughter-in-laws, and she says, there's nothing for me here. I've got to go back home. If I'm going to be homeless and alone, I'll be homeless and alone in the place I grew up. And we see in the story that word gets to her that the famine's not really in the land anymore. There's harvest that's happening. It's rain. She's like, I'm going back there. And the daughters-in-law start packing up because they think that assumes that they're going to be going. And she goes, oh, no. You don't want to make this journey. You have friends here. You have family here. You owe me nothing at this point. Because the only way that our family could possibly stay together for you to have hope would be for me to have more sons. And even I'm old, I'm not having sons, but even by some miracle, if I was pregnant right now, would you wait? It's really funny. She's like, that's an absurd thing. You're young enough and near enough your home, go back to the house of your mother and start your life over again. Just leave me behind. And both the young women go, no, 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 we're here for you. And she goes, she gets adamant. She goes, it's bitter for me. God's given me nothing but bitterness. Come on now, some of us have dealt with a mother-in-law situation and some bitterness got in there. Just saying, there's a story here. (laughs) Some of you are avoiding eye contact with mother-in-laws in in the room. (laughs) Don't worry about it. This is just Ruth's story. And uh, (laughs) Orpah, I'm going to say Oprah. It's like locked into my head. That's a whole different story. Orpah goes, all right, I'm out. She taps out and she says, I I, I don't want to go to a land where I don't know, with people I don't know, with someone who I don't know, and there's no hope. I'll just, if I'm going to be stuck, I'll stay here. And she leaves. Now, i got to be honest with you. There's a whole message right there that I don't have time to just unpack. But I can't tell this story without referencing. There are some people who are in your life right now who are not assigned to go the distance with you, and that's okay. That's okay. They have to do their assignment and go their place, and you should not get, fra- it's hard when someone leaves us, especially when we're down, or especially when we're not sure what's going on, but they have to go where they're assigned, and you should celebrate, they went where they were assigned, so Oprah, Oprah, Orpa, <laughs> leaving is not a knock on Orpa. it's where she's supposed to go, she's not part of the story anymore, she has her own story, and her own journey, and sometimes that hurts, but that's okay, Ruth has another reaction. It's this beautiful reaction. One of the craziest, most amazing uh, 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 passages in all of scripture, Ruth chapter one, verse 16. It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave, to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wow. Wow. Wow, what an amazing and caring statement for this younger woman to look at this older woman in distress and say, I have a ticket here to not care about you anymore, to not make your problems my problems. And your God, who seems to have forsaken you, I don't have to make him my God. I can go back to my Moabite God. And your people, who I don't know who they are, I don't have to worry. She could have disassociated and said, this isn't my problem. Orpah did. She wasn't a sign. But Ruth says, That's not what I'm gonna do. I've seen the situation and I've seen what you've been through. And I'm gonna give you my strength and I'm gonna give you my presence and I'm gonna go deep and I'm gonna be sacrificed and it's gonna risk my dreams, it's gonna risk my things because, come on now, I care for you. I genuinely care for you. Sometimes caring for someone takes sacrifice. It takes a willingness to put down our personal agendas and help out and pick up someone else. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He cared about us so much that he went straight into our weakness and carried us and lifted us up. Everyone experiences tough times. This is why it's so important not to lead with judgment, but to lead with compassion and with care. The people of God are the care for one another people. That's us. Her story is fascinating. She leaves the house of bread, and she makes a statement. Uh, I I think it's around verse 22, and she says, uh, maybe it's verse 21, and she says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. I left my house full. And what's crazy is she left her house because she was hungry, but she was full. She had her husband. She had her little boys. And it's funny how when tragedy strikes, we realign our priorities, don't we? Not having food was the biggest need until she didn't have her babies. Come on now. It's funny what it takes for food to become secondary on our list. It takes something important, doesn't it? It really does. I remember, I don't think he's in the room right now, my my oldest. He's huge now. I remember the first time that we were having dinner and there wasn't enough food because he ate so much for me to just eat as much as I wanted to and him to eat as much as he wanted to. Like the portions changed. And I had to make a decision. Which one of us didn't eat as much as I wanted to? I got to be honest with you. That was never a thing. When does that become a thing? I was like an only child most of my life. So it was like as much as you want. You were the baby, right? And then I got married and I stayed the baby. Come on, somebody. Come on, preach. Preach. We're telling the truth in this room. (laughs) And suddenly someone else was the baby. And there was only but so much. And one of us can make more food if they want pretty easily. And the other one can't. And it's funny what it takes to kind of realign. Come on, now our priorities and our heart. And here's Naomi, and she leaves because there's no food. But when she looks at coming back, she goes, when I left, I was actually full. I had so much, and I've experienced so much crisis, I'm actually going back emptier, even though there's food now. It's amazing how a little tragedy brings us together. Hard times, rough times, difficult circumstances bring people together. You know what? Be careful if I say this. I don't know, if I, I don't know how much I trust somebody that hasn't been through some tragedy, Right, into my like close inner circle, if you haven't been through some stuff, because I know it shapes us. It pulls out our true character. We know what, when, come on now, you squeeze a lemon, you get some lemonade. What happens when we squeeze you? What comes out? And if you haven't been through some squeezing, I don't know what's in there. What that thing is made of that's inside of you. And so, And so sometimes tragedy will show us Orpah, she bounced. But Ruth, in the midst of that squeezing, she's been squeezed. She's lost a father-in-law who took her in. She's lost a husband. She's left with a mother-in-law who self-identifies as bitter. She's not even name-calling or making judgments here. Naomi's like, don't even call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. I don't know how many of us in that circumstance would be like, That's the person I'm connecting to, I'm assigned to. I'm going deep, I'm going long with. But she recognizes, come on now, her context and her circumstance. It's easy to look at someone and say, this person's a pain. I'm not going deep with them. I'm not caring about them. I'm not getting into their circumstance. I'm not getting into their world. There's bitterness coming all over the place out of them. But she is aware of her circumstance and it gives her context. Come on now, follower of Jesus. It's hard to not care for someone once you've got their context, once you know their story. Once you go go past their social media profile, come on now, or their little presentation, or their little attitude, that person who's chippy, dealing with anger and pain and hurt, that person whose bravado is putting you off, coming out of an abusive life and relationship, changes everything. Changes everything when you know someone's story, when you see what they've been through. Ruth sees what she's been through and makes the decision to care for her. So they head home. (laughs) You know, we all all feel this tension. I, I wanted to just drop this verse in the middle of the story. Matthew 25, verse 44, Jesus talking about people who respond in the tension, says that that People will see me and see people in need and make decisions. And he says, they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he replied, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for or did not do for one of the least of these, it's like you didn't do it for me. Jesus is painting this picture. Last week, we talked about how the Bible tells us we actually might entertain angels in our hospitality and that sometimes we kind of just put that on the shelf of metaphor, but the scripture is literally saying there are angels that we may be entertaining in our midst. And here's Jesus putting a picture that when we treat people who are in need a specific way and serve them, it's like we do it for him. Why? Because they carry his image. They're created in his image. He designed them and he cares for them. And here's Ruth saying, okay, yeah, things are broken and hard, but I'm going to care for you. The story goes on. For time's sake. I'll fast forward. And we have a picture in chapter 2 of Ruth. And Naomi, they get back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and they're staying kind of somewhere. We get this not clear picture of what kind of shelter they've managed to acquire, but they have no food, no wealth, no resource. Now, Elimelech had some land that would be their inheritance, and they're entitled to wealth, but they're women. And in this culture, they can't inherit. So they have no access or control over these fields and these resources. They need a family relative male to assume responsibility for them in order for this to work the picture the legal term for it was a kinsman redeemer and they don't have one willing to step up and do that in this moment and so they are just on their own trying to figure it out and Ruth and you can imagine this picture of Naomi this older woman who's literally embraced her bitterness this was my home. This is where I had a son. This is where I had another son. And this is where I had a husband. And there's no evidence that she does any work to move her position in life forward beyond this point. She's become content to rest in this area. And so Ruth does the only thing she can control. She says, okay, well, I'll get out and I'll start establishing how we're going to live and make it. And she begins to serve Naomi. Naomi. In her bitterness and in her pain and in her frustration, she makes a decision to serve her. And so she goes out, and there's this beautiful story, and you should read the story, of her gleaning in the fields. And essentially, the law allowed, uh, it was this great picture of God's mercy uh, and towards towards foreigners. And it allowed for people, when they're harvesting, if it, if the grain fell to the ground, they weren't supposed to pick it up. They're supposed to leave it there for the poorest and for foreigners to come through and collect so that they could eat off of the land of what God's provided. And so Ruth's out doing this. Now, you got to imagine, in this culture where women are essentially powerless, and especially widows, and especially foreign women, in another land who's a widow with no protection, she's at incredible risk. As a matter of fact, at one point, Boaz makes a comment uh, that says, says you got to stay here because someone might abuse you somewhere else. I'm just t- giving you a picture of the risk that she was experiencing. But she went out to provide food for her and for Naomi. And I love the narrative of this story. It's so beautiful. In, in the original language, that the author, who we believe is Samuel the prophet, but uh, church history tells us that. And I'll tell you why Samuel as the author is kind of important here if I have time at the end. But tells this incredible story. And he says, and it just so happened it just kind of happened out that way that the field that Ruth wandered into and began to ask, "Can I follow along and pick up some food?" happened to belong to this guy named Boaz. It's the, the way the language is written, it's so beautiful. It's like it's like you just happen. It's like Jonah was running from God and he got thrown into the water, and it just so happened that a giant fish was there. That got right? It's like no, they didn't just so happen. Wink. There's a God who is in control. Ruth doesn't know Boaz. We actually find out that Boaz shows up later. He's not there. She's not scheming. Her only plan is to care for Naomi. And that care, that story gets to the guy who owns the field, Boaz. And Boaz learns about Ruth in the field collecting grain for Naomi. And he hears her story. This is so good. He hears her story And it gives him her context. Come on now. And then he cares for her. And because of that context, he begins this incredible, incredible conversation. And he calls her in. And he invites her to his table. He cooks food and he feeds her. And because, come on now, because she's frugal, she actually, I love this picture. It's like she takes her napkin and she takes some of the food he's feeding her and she wraps it up for Naomi when she gets home. And then she goes back out and she works. And it says she gathered a whole ephah of grain. Boaz actually tells the workers, he's like, listen, throw some extra grain on the ground in front of her. Like intentionally from the bales, just dump it so she can get what she needs. (laughs) Why? Because he's heard her story. Now, i got to be honest with you. This story wrecks me and messes with my paradigm. Because the tables have flipped. Now she's the foreigner, right? Naomi was the foreigner in Moab. Now she's a foreigner, She's not a citizen. She has no legal rights. She's just a, 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 a hard luck case begging for food. And they could have abused her and mistreated her. They could have looked at her with disdain and disgust. They could have been offended. They could have had a million reactions. But someone heard her story, and he told Boaz. And Boaz caught her context, and that context changed his heart towards her. And he said, this woman's kind. This woman's been through hell on earth. She's lost her father-in-law. She's lost her husband. Her sister-in-law bailed. And she's stuck with that bitter Naomi. And she's serving her and giving her, providing for her. Let's help her. Let's be kind towards her. Let's drop a little of our excess. And, And it says she gathers a whole ephah of grain, which is a bizarre amount. It's like 30 pounds, 30 to 50 pounds. Like a normal gathering would be close to a pound a day. She gets like a month's worth of food, right? She shows back up and Naomi in her bitterness looks at this and her eyes pop. She's like, what is all this? She's like, I don't know, but this guy Boaz, he hooked us up. She's like, I know Boaz. Boaz is a relative, and Ruth's like, no way. And she's like, he's someone who could, who could claim us and le- legitimize us and bring value back to us. And then she hatches this really weird and totally shady plan, chapter three. You should read it. It involves finding Boaz when he's asleep and uncovering his feet and laying on his feet. And like, I, it's weird. I don't know the cultural context. I've tried, and I just I got nothing for you other than there was a heart-level, willing-to-submit partnership thing, and there was a trust piece that happened because of Boaz's care. Here's what's so cool. Look at the cycle of care. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, go to a foreign land, and they take foreign wives, and they care. Come on, their, their sons care for these foreign wives. And then these foreign wives, one leaves, but one stays and cares for Naomi. And then they go back home and she begins to serve Naomi. And then Boaz sees and he cares, come on now, for her. And he demonstrates compassion towards her. And then she comes home and Naomi's like, let's go be really nice to him. It's weird, right? And they try that route. Now here's what's amazing about this story too. We don't know what these characters' story look like. This isn't like a You know, this this isn't an Esther, like, brown, chicken, brown, cat. Right? This isn't this story at all, okay? What is is attractive between Boaz and Ruth is this cycle of character and compassion and hard work and, and concern for others. It ignites one of the most beautiful love stories in all of the scripture and all of time. Boaz is smitten by this act of, of, of foot covering. I don't know what you call it. You get to chapter four, and Ruth says, would you basically redeem us? Would you claim me and our family? You have right to do that. And then, boy, is this really beautiful, weird thing. He goes, there's someone else who actually just legally has the position and, and right to do it, and there's a right way to do this, and we're going to do this the right way. And I don't know if, what God's doing, but if God's in it, we have nothing to worry about. But I'll make sure that you're taken care of either way. So if it's me that takes care of you or if I just bring you to the resource that God has and I don't get to enjoy, come on, the, the reward of that, I'm also okay with that. Because it's more about you being taken care of than me getting what I want. And he doesn't manipulate he doesn't come in there and make a big, grand, romantic gesture. He just calls the other relative who's first in line legally to claim Ruth and Elimelech's land. And they call the elders together and they say, Hey, Naomi and, and, and Ruth are hanging out here and they're Elimelech's uh, 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 family and you're the closest relative. Do you want to claim them? And this other guy, we don't even know his name, he's like, Sure, I'll claim the land. And he goes, you know that Ruth's a Moabitist. And he goes, whoa, I didn't sign up for no Moabite woman. And there's this angle in here. He goes, that might actually ruin my inheritance. It's a crazy picture because he recognizes that the family wealth, if he has a child with Ruth, that that might actually go into Moabite culture. And he's not willing to mess with his. And he says, he, says see, he never gets their story, their context. So he's able to treat them as a circumstance and not a human. And he goes, that circumstance can't be my problem. And so he bounces out of the story and Boaz slides in there. Come on now. And he says, all right, you're all witnesses. He didn't want her or them. I mean, the land. (laughs) Wink. She covers my feet nice. I don't know. I just don't know what to do with that church. I'm just being real. And he claims them. And he brings them in as family. And he welcomes them from a situation where they are at risk where they don't have wealth, where they don't have reputation, and they don't have standing. And he says, I'll bring my wealth and my reputation and my standing, and I'm not worried about my resource going outside of some, some inheritance line that I've set up because I care for you, and you have value. Now, Boaz is an incredible story. If I had time, it's 1129, so I'm going to wrap soon. Just trust me. Actually, where's uh, Maximus at? Help me out, brother. Come on down. Uh, I, uh, I want to tell you Boaz's story, and then I also want to tell you their kid's story. There's so much good story, you just need to read it. But if you go to Matthew chapter 1, around verse 5, I don't even have this for the screen, I don't think, uh, and you just look at the genealogy and the history of Jesus, you're going to see something incredible. Boaz's mom, according to the genealogy, is someone that you guys have heard of before. Her name was Rahab. She was a woman without much reputation. Come on now. And if you don't know the story of Rahab, now, there's some contention if that was his mom or if that was like a grandma because there's like a 100 years between the two. So, so I don't know how old these guys were in this, but either his mom or his grandma at the very least, but most likely his mom was Rahab. So Boaz is someone who grew up, come on now, around people where someone was constantly in some kind of judgment of reputation, hearing stories that, that, that there was hope beyond, come on now, This history, and that. if I got your context, it would change everything. So Boaz and Ruth do what married people do, and they have a baby, and his name is Obed. I think I'm saying that right. That baby has a baby whose name is Jesse, and that baby has a baby whose name is David, and it's that David. And so then in Matthew chapter 1, we see this incredible picture of the lineage of Jesus. And there's like 80-something men and like four or five women. And in that group of women are people, come on now, who showed incredible compassion in this crazy chain of history that led to King David and ultimately led to Jesus. And these were people who saw folks that had, oh gosh, no strength, no positional authority, none of the things that that we would look at and say, this is what makes them powerful or important, but instead caught their context and their heart and judged them based on character and brought them into their family. And we see this beautiful picture of the lineage of Jesus Connected to women of the night, widows from foreign cultures who were beggars, men who claimed people who laid on their feet. I don't know. And the reason we believe Samuel most likely read this is Samuel is the prophet who, who found David and would have just been like, hey, tell me the story. Where did this family come from? We'll talk to Jesse and David? And it's, oh, well, let me tell you this crazy story. I got a grandma who was a Moabitess. And, and, and Grandpa Boaz cared for her. And she cared for my great-grandma Naomi. And Naomi was contemporaries. Remember the Rahab? Yeah, yeah, that's us. And Samuel's like, wow. Man, men look at the outside, but God sure picks people based on, come on, the heart and the character and the context and the story of who they really are. Would you stand with me? I'm going to let us get out of here. But I just wanted us as a church to be challenged as we have this conversation about this entire body that we're supposed to care for, and this entire picture of a human race that God loves. And I just want us to understand something. 1 John says we love because he first loved us. God demonstrated his love first so that we would understand while we were still sinners, while we were still just junked, he went into the context of your story and said, I know you think this is what you're entitled to based on where you've been, but let me tell you who you really are. Let me bring my strength and let me bring my resource, and let me bring hope, and let me bring you into family that's beyond any other family picture that you've ever experienced, so that you can know just how valuable you are. And we were all foreigners, we were all outside the family. And he said, No, 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 you're all in. What if that family came together and had those eyes? with every person we bumped into and said, wait a second here, what if we began to be the kind of people who perpetuated a cycle of caring for one another? What if God has divinely placed you in a context right now where there are people around you who are your assignment to care for? There's some that aren't. That's okay. Someone will cover them. If they're not your assignment, but listen, there's some that are your assignment, even if they're hard. So my challenge to you is to get past someone's circumstance and get to their context and get a picture of the truth of who they really are and then love that thing that God has put in their life. Give that hope and that destiny. When we did this little baby dedication and we talked about that plan, that thing that God wrote in the womb for each and every one of us, come on now. Let's love them based on that and accept them even though they've been, come on now. We talked about acceptance even though they've been through what they've been through because you were accepted when you went through what you went through. So Jesus, challenge us stretch us help us to be the thing you called us to be your hands your feet the body of Christ help us to love and care for people even if it stretches us even if it costs us even if it pulls us out of our comfort zone Uh, God we can't do everything for everyone but we can do something for someone so who you put in our path oh God help us to be the people who care Help us to recategorize things. Don't, don't, we don't, Romans chapter 12, God, verse 2 says, don't, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Help us to not let the patterns of this world let us categorize people. We're not going to categorize based on people, the world's patterns. We're going to be transformed and renew our mind and, and, and just see people as created in the image of God. And we're going to start from there. And then we're going to love like you. And we're going to trust you to let things work out because we don't control. We just partner and we trust you. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Go read Ruth this week. Trust the Lord. God bless you. Have your eyes up. Care for someone. We'll see you next week.